Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and the 2024 F1 launch season is now in full swing, with Haas the first to show us a brand new car, well, at least a digital version of it, that reveals a reasonable amount of detail. Meanwhile, the Hamilton to Ferrari story rolls on, with Toto Wolff having said his piece on the shock move. I'm Ed Stewart, and joining me to take a close look at the new Haas, and have a quick chat about Toto Wolff, are Gary Anderson and Mark Hughes. Well, Gary, welcome to F1 launch season. We'll get into Haas shortly. That'll be the bulk of the podcast. But we are going to do a quick update on Hamilton to Ferrari following our previous podcast. Before we hear about what Toto Wolff's been saying, it's worth getting your opinion on it, as podcast listeners won't have heard about it. So what did you make of the shock news that Hamilton's heading to Ferrari in 25? Well, I was surprised for sure. You know, it, it was one of those things where it had a bit of momentum uh, last season, but it seemed to die out with a new contract signed for two years at, at Mercedes and um, Lewis seeming to dedicate the rest of his driving career to, to Mercedes. Um, and, you know, if it really did happen within the last few days, then it's a fairly major blow for Mercedes, to be honest. It's, it's one of those things where, you, you know, sometimes these things are simmering. But there was no simmering to this one. It was just it just happened. Um, so yeah, a bit of a surprise. Um, obviously, the deal that, that Ferrari offered must have been fairly uh, impressive, both from from a car point of view, from development, and from the direction the company's taken, and obviously financially. But no, never mind that. You know, any any top driver really would love to have a bit of a pedal in a red Ferrari. Um, because you know it is one of those things, and if it's the end of your, if it's the last run and the end of your career, then it's something to do, you know. So it's it's quite motivating, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I'd love to know more detail on it. It's not there; it's happening, and um, I will be I'll be quite keen to see how twenty twenty five sort of balances out, really, because Leclerc's no slouch by any means, um, and he's you know he is Ferrari's hero. You know, there's nothing to say that that Lewis couldn't go there and beat him, but it, it won't be that easy. So. Um, it's going to be an interesting challenge, but we've got a year to go before then, so let's let's see how that all unfolds. There'll certainly be lots of talking in the interim. You always have a good a good saying. You attribute to Harvey Postlethwaite about going to Ferrari. So does that apply to the driver if things aren't as competitive as hoped? Well, I think it applies to anybody, to be honest. Yeah, put your business card in the top of the desk with your uh, what you're getting paid written on the back of it, and every day it gets too much for you. Take it out and have a look, and then just put it away again and smile. Yeah, Harvey was quite funny with that, but um, I, I think it probably does. But, you know, again, it's a little bit of prestige for the driver. You know, if you take sort of Eddie Irvine, for example, who was, you know, drove and was a very competent driver, won some races against Michael Schumacher, but really was Michael Schumacher's number two. I mean, you know, Eddie can go to Italy and never, never buy a plate of pasta in his life. Because, you know, the, the Italians just love Ferrari drivers. Uh, countrywide, they know them, you know, and, and that's that's a big thing. The the following that Lewis will get from from the, the Ferrari 
mob will be incredible, really. You know, he's got a lot of followers anyway, but, you know, just to add that Italian branch onto it will be just enormous. So, um, yes, it's not the wrong thing. And, and again, you know, after his f racing days and maybe some little bit of, uh, you know, uh, work for him to do with Ferrari as a, as a bit of an ambassador of some sort, you never know what comes out of all these deals, but I'm sure he hasn't done it for nothing. And we should be able to fill in a few of those gaps about the timeline that you are expressing interest in, because, Mark, we both heard from Toto Wolf not long ago. So can you tell listeners what we learned from him about the way this all played out, certainly from a Mercedes perspective? Yeah, so from um, Toto, we learned that Lewis actually told him on Wednesday, which is just a day before the rest of us found out, so Lewis had obviously pressed the button then, but it had obviously been some time in the planning, getting the contracts and everything ready, but ready for Lewis to press the button if he wanted to or not. And um, what we also learned from Toto was um, sort of his thinking as they agreed that what we now find out was a one plus one year deal uh, with, with Hamilton for Mercedes. And that he, he said it it gave them both options for the future. So in other words, Mercedes didn't, necessarily want to be tied into a long time to a driver um you know that's going to be in his in his 40s by the end of the contract um and also when toto was talking about possible replacements he said maybe it gives us a chance to be bold which made, immediately made us all think of Kimi antonelli um just about to start his formula two season and you know maybe in those um the negotiations for that one plus one deal if Toto was leveled with Lewis and said look the idea is for Antonelli to do a couple of years at Williams and then we'd like to bring him in it may be enough of a nudge for Lewis to think well maybe I just go after year one and you know it's my last chance of the Ferrari gig and there might be nothing for me here in 26 so why not and but I think that's only just like the, the foundation I think I'm not dismissing how much of an appeal it would have for Lewis to go to Ferrari, to be in the red cars. And, and, and as he said, and as we talked about on yesterday's podcast, in his interview at the end of last year, he was talking about the excitement of the, the he's thinking back to the excitement when he first joined Mercedes from McLaren and how he, he, that, that level of excitement can't be there when you, you've been at a team for 12 years. So he's clearly yearning to sort of mix it up a little bit. And I think all of those things together, the sort of the, the, the environment, the, the years, and the fact that Ferrari was probably able to offer him a, you know, a longer, a longer term deal uh, at the end of the day. I think the, the, all those things came together. It made logical sense and it made emotional sense. And he, he'll have thought, why not? Let's do it. Yeah, it's certainly interesting that the longer horizon in terms of the deal played a part in, in Hamilton's thinking. Obviously, the whole thing about a new challenge, that's a good neutral thing for both sides to say, isn't it? Because it's, uh, it says it's all about the, the what the driver wants to do in terms of challenge. So uh, it's inevitable uh, Total would also latch on to that. But it was interesting, the talk about potential replacements, wasn't it, in terms of what they might want to do beyond uh, beyond Hamilton. Obviously, Antonelli was the uh, obvious one, uh, Andrea Kimi Antonelli. Um, I did ask him specifically about that and said, yeah, is he a possible choice? Could he become a contender if F2 goes well or is next year just too early to be in a Mercedes? And he gave a, a very non-committal answer. I, I very carefully wanted to make sure that what I asked him gave him the chance to rule him out 
or in and he sort of avoided it but what he said is the important thing is that he concentrates on F2 but I think we can take from that that Antonelli is absolutely in the discussion for uh, replacing uh, replacing Hamilton but yeah the the thing that really struck me was that that timeline because as you've alluded to Mark, although the the decision has happened quite late and the whole the whole thing has sort of played out in terms of he is moving Mercedes no has happened quite late and probably Ferrari didn't know for sure but yeah the the work has been done for quite a quite a long time I think on this so yeah interesting and uh, Toto certainly made sure he said he understood it and didn't take anything didn't take it personally in any way but you've got to imagine there's some uh, uh, there's some surprise just in the the speed with which it uh, it's all ended and uh, uh, when he had so yeah very very uh, very interesting i imagine gary you'd like the idea of an antonelli in that seat you always favor a young driver and uh, we know how good he is yeah i think it's important you know you don't learn about it unless you're doing it and uh, some of the bigger teams need to take those gambles nowadays you know george russell will be a a very experienced professional driver by by 2025. You know he's got a lot of years under his belt. Maybe not in the great the greatest of cars, but we know that George can can do the job. So at the end of the day, to bring in a new boy and try and find that um, that next Max Verstappen. Um, you know if you don't do it, you aren't going to do it. And and to be honest, by placing him in in some in a Williams for a couple of years. It might just knock the momentum. If he does a good job in F2 this year and he's got the momentum going for him, then if you can keep that momentum going, get him straight into your team and, and, and learn about it altogether because it's um, that's what it's about, just keeping that momentum going. And, and you can make a few mistakes, but you know, so be it. That's life. Um, even the hardened professionals make those mistakes as well. As long as Mercedes end up with one top-end driver, which obviously in George Russell they have, then bring on somebody else to be the next uh, the next match for Stappen. And you won't do it if you don't do it. One other thing, Mark, that I found interesting, and this does touch on some of the things we talked about yesterday, is Toto said that George Russell has the potential to be the next lead driver in the team. And that kind of confirms they're still... They know, they know Russell's very, very good. But it's still that that teetering on the kind of edge of is he going to be an absolute mega or is he just going to be very 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 good? So that to me hints that they want to see Russell take this opportunity right now and show that this is going to be a better season from the off, and then that could influence second driver choice too. Yeah, I think so. I think that you're going to use George as the security to allow them to be bold in the way that McLaren used Fernando Alonso signing in 2007 to allow them to take on the rookie Hamilton. Um, and I think, yeah, George, he, he's been there on equal terms um, in, in terms of status within the team, not in terms of money, but in terms of status. They're an equal number one pairing. And you're not going to establish leadership over Lewis Hamilton. You, you're, not, you're doing very well not to get ground down into the number two role like Valtteri Bottas did, just on sheer performance. Um But he's not established a clear superiority over Hamilton, and that would be too big an ask, I think, of anyone. Um, but he's now, you know, he's now secure in his position. You're the, you're our long term um, guy, so we we you know we're looking to you now, and then Lewis can just do what he does, and how he how he gets on is not really um, in 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 George's uh, control. So all he can do is just maximise his, his own performances, and uh, you know, knowing that the team are looking to him for leadership. Yeah, and that's going to be 
putting pressure on Russell, but it's what every driver wants. He's got a great opportunity now to really establish himself as the as the main driver for that team. So there's going to be plenty more talk about uh, Hamilton's move to Ferrari over the next year, but I thought it was well worth us quickly catching up on that before getting into the main business of the day. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Right, Mark, before Gary wows us with detail on the Haas, just looking broadly at the car, Team Principal Ayo Komatsu characterises it as the full-blown version of the concept they moved towards last year with that Austin update. So is Haas going the right way from what you've seen from the, we should add, 10 renders that we've got of the car so far? It's moving in the direction that nearly everybody else was moving already last year. It's moving further in the direction that they did with their Austin upgrade where they sort of um move the the, the the front of the side pod up give it a greater undercut and moving away from that original Ferrari philosophy of the the outrushing side pods um there was only so much they could do with that because they were stuck with the radiator layout they had because it was going to be too expensive to to change that and the um the uh, side impact bar the lower side impact bar was it was at the maximum height so they've taken the opportunity with a new chassis to lower that impact bar and move some of the radiator area further up and that's allowed them to have that shape side pod more like red bull um had to start with uh, with the beginning of last year and what everybody moved towards like mclaren with its upgrade in austria um and then we saw three teams do a very similar thing in singapore as alfa romero alfa tari and alpine all did a very similar thing so um yeah Haas now looks like it's uh, in terms of the the philosophy of its car it looks like it's it's moving towards it's converging towards what's becoming the um the, the standard template we can get into the detail now with you gary obviously mark alluded to the repackaging of the side pods the the inlet the, the undercut all this kind of thing so that's kind of the key thing to look at with this car isn't it yeah it is really i mean it's it's about opening the doors. You know, you don't have to open the door and go through it at the same time. But I think what Haas had last year, they were sort of boxed in a little bit. They didn't get the return from the wind tunnel efforts for whatever reason. I'm not saying it was just a car concept, you know, but uh, sometimes you can get yourself in a situation where no matter what you do around the, the geometry of the chassis that you have, and as Mark says there about the side impact structures, they are very limiting in... in uh, and what you can do around them if, if you have them in the in the wrong place. There is a little window of opportunity to move them around. It's not that big, but if you've gone in a, in a different position with them, you can't just move it because it's you know, the, sh- the chassis structurally has to withstand the loads. So what I'd say from the car I've seen so far, they've they've definitely opened some doors 
to allow them to be able to influence the airflow in certain areas. Now, they don't show any detail along the edge of the floor, um, the outer edge of the floor, and that's really a, a, a huge performance part of the car. But what they have done is opened up that undercut below the radiator intake on the top of the floor so they can have more flow through there to do something with. Um, last year they were a, a little bit constrained. Um, I'm a big believer in the the letterbox style radiator inlet um, as such uh, as Red Bull have got in the fact that the airflow going through the radiator doesn't isn't consistent. You know, if you've got cooling, you have to have reasonable cooling for the average speed of each track. So the average speed of each track is, let's say, you know, if you took the whole season, it's probably 210, 220 kilometers an hour. So you, you look at trying to get your, your cooling efficient at that level of car speed. So below that, basically, you, you know, the radiator will flow lots of, will have lots of flow going through it, no problems, because the car's not going fast enough. But then whenever you hit that sort of average speed of the track, uh, the radiator starts to block up. It just can't flow that amount of air. So then it has to go somewhere else. And if that somewhere else influences the performance of the side pod or the underfloor, then it's a dramatic change on the performance of the car at high speed. Because obviously, you know, we, we do get corners above 200, 220 kilometers an hour. Um, so you, you want to try and manage that, that spillage flow out of the radiator as best possible. And that type of radiator inlet uh, manages that style of flow much better as it just joins up with the flow going across the top of the side pod and down into the Coke bottle area. So I think they've, you know, as I say, they've opened up lots of doors for themselves. Now it's about optimizing that outer edge of the floor, getting all the turning vanes, all the, the slots and bits and pieces into the right position to make to let that flow that's going through there now um, be be uh, complementary to the to the underfloor of the car. So uh, I'm not. Ex I wouldn't expect to see them just sort of go out now and 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 be doing pole position times. Um, it'll take a little bit of time, I think, for all the small detail to sort of mount up and get put onto the car. But as I say, I think they've opened some doors. And also looking on the aero side further back, you noticed a little bit of a change in the beam wing approach again. Some Red Bull hints there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's important that we look back through the year. And, and I think one of the areas of, that the Red Bull probably changed from race to race quite consistently was how the beam wing interacts. There is a, a sort of box area where the beam wing can go. Um, and it can be a maximum of two, two components, two flaps. Um, you could have a one-piece beam wing if you want, which is seen on a few occasions. Um, but it doesn't say they've got to be mounted as, as a wing. It's not, it's not so you have to have a, a main plane and a flap as such, like the upper wing is, and their, their sizes are restricted. Um, the beam wing's pretty open, so you can have you know your, your, your main plane acting as a, a one big turning vane, as Haas have done now, which operates the, uh, the underfloor. It works with the underfloor quite dramatically as a sort of trailing edge extension, I suppose you might call it, for the underfloor. And then you have the the uh, the other flap of it, you know, as a more of a trim, uh, a trim flap to tidy up the airflow for the underneath of the the upper wing, and that was one of the things I said very early on last year that you know whenever Red Bull had their um, excess speed from DRS, I suppose all the other teams were calling it, was the fact that they were working the whole back of the car as one piece, not as three three individual items. They didn't have a diffuser, a beam wing, and a top wing. They had all the back of the car, the flow was all connected up. All those parts were talking to each other. Um, and, uh, you know, going way back, because aerodynamics are still the same, you know, there's no, there's no 
there's a massive change in regulations, but actually this is just a, a piece of kit that's going through airflow and it's producing forces. And that's been the same for since, you know, the, the horse and cart, really. Um, you still got wind in your face whenever you're flying along with your horse, so that you know, aerodynamics don't change. And you know, going back to the, the 91 Jordan, we used to run with a, with a very small um, central wing, I suppose you might call it, halfway between the beam wing and the upper wing, even at places like Monza or, or Hockenheim, high-speed tracks, because it just meant you could run so much less upper wing but the three of them would sort of talk to each other, so you end up with more rear downforce by putting in that, that small flap, rather than taking it out, which everybody else used to do, and and putting in a you know putting on a, a more upper wing. So, as I say, if you can get the whole back of the car to work together, it's a it's a really important part of it because the DRS then can affect the whole back of the car as well. So yeah, as I say, with Haas, I can't say they've got everything right because we haven't seen it in detail enough. But I think they've put themselves in a better place than they ended last season. So now they just got to use their their uh, development correctly because for quite a few years they haven't really moved forward from where they started the season. This has got to be a new challenge for them. Stabilise but keep moving forward because, as I said earlier on in one of my columns, you know the only thing I guarantee is really somebody's going to win the Constructors' Championship this year and somebody's going to finish 10th in it. Who that is... Uh, it's not defined just yet, but it is going to happen for sure. And as long as you're, if you finish tenth, but you're fighting with the guy who's ninth, you've done okay. But somebody's going to have to finish last in that championship. It's worth us having a look at some of the mechanical aspects of the car because, of course, Haas has the Ferrari technical partnership. So that means, Mark, that it gets it's got you access to latest spec Ferrari stuff. So Ferrari suspension, basically all the non-transferable components, if you want it in really simple terms, the team has to do pretty much all its aero stuff and the monocoque and things like that. But all the, the mechanical bits, the suspension, the gearbox, the bits under the skin, that can be supplied. But no particular surprises there in that they've they've got the same uh, the same broad suspension geometry insofar as it's, uh, it's pushrod front pull rod at the rear so uh, i guess that's to be expected yeah that's just telling us that that's uh, what ferrari is sticking with um it, it's the opposite of uh, what red bull and mclaren have done they've, they've gone pull rod front push rod rear um but uh, some some aerodynamics will tell you that that won't make any difference it's just a different way of doing the same thing um there are others who say that there are some advantages they can see in doing it the way Red Bull and McLaren have done it, um, but that's Ferrari have chosen to stick with what they had already. Um, but I think um, Gary noticed some extra um, anti-dive on the front and um, the um, anti-squat of the rear uh, seems to have been enhanced as well. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to see from the, the renders and obviously, you know, they can cheat them a little bit. So I wouldn't get too excited yet about what we've seen suspension-wise. Um, all I'll say is that... Um, you know, you've got an aerodynamic platform that is the underfloor, that is a large area close to the ground, and it's it's generating a lot of downforce. Now, suspension-wise, you have to manage that that ride height change. That, the ride height change can be dramatic to the to the centre of pressure and the amount of downforce and how it all works. So, it's no good having the best underfloor in the world at one at one particular ride height. You have to have the best underfloor in the world at lots of different ride heights because that's the one car thing the car will do. The, the ride height will change from coming out of a slow corner at 50 kilometres an hour to hitting the brake pedal at a fast 
end of a fast straight, 320, 350 kilometres an hour. The ride height will have changed dramatically going down that straight, but it will also change dramatically with weight transfer. So you've got to try and manage that as best possible. If anybody comes along, you know, for 2024 and they haven't really looked at in detail at trying to control that, that part of the car, and my, my book, it's anti-dive in the front and anti-lift in the rear that's really critical. You can cope with a little bit of squat off the corner because that's okay. It just gives you better rear grip and better traction. But it's when you hit the brake pedal, you just don't want the car to change attitude. Because if it does change attitude, you're going to have the weight transfer off the rear tyres onto the front tyres. But you're also going to have an aerodynamic shift onto the front tyres. And those two combined is really makes the rear of the car very nervous. So what you'll end up with, balance-wise, is to... Just the nervousness of the rear of the car. Give it, that'll just give you a bunch of mid-corner understeer, and you'll just have a you know you'll just have an, an average car. So you've got to control that that platform. Uh, so I'll be surprised if Haas doesn't have more, as I say, anti-dive in the front and anti-lift in the rear, because as you say, the, the Ferrari gearbox is 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 used by Haas. But the pull rod suspension on the rear of the car also confuses me a little bit because. That area where the pull rod goes down into the gearbox is the area where you want to make the gearbox as narrow as possible to help the diffuser. The diffuser's got a certain width. You can't go wider, but you can go narrower, and you can increase its performance that way. So um, it's it seems strange that they would stick with the pull rod suspension because, as I say, that, that area of the gearbox where you've got the rocker, driving the torsion bar, etc., etc., is where you want to really optimise the aerodynamics of the underfloor. And by going to a push rod, you get rid of that problem. It doesn't really matter that everything's on top of the gearbox because, as we can see, the, most teams have radiator exits, you know, all that sort of stuff at the top there somewhere. So the, the width is not so critical. Um, again, on the pull rod front suspension, I think the pull rod goes hand in hand with uh, the anti-lift on the top wishbone because the geometry of it, the way it works, is a bit better. You can also have... The way the regulations are written, you're allowed one rocker to turn the, the, the to turn the direction of the push uh, the push rod or pull rod basically uh, force. You're allowed you're allowed one rocker to turn that around into a torsion bar or into a spring as such. Um, so by having a rocker at the top driving a torsion bar, you're allowed one mechanism to to change the rotation. By having um, a pull rod and a rocker at the bottom driving a probably a, a push rod link to another rocker driving the push rod, you can actually get away with two. And if you've got two, you can have much, much more rising rate on the front suspension. So it's a playing with the regulations and finding that grey area. So again, it'd be interesting to see in more detail and hopefully when we get to Bahrain and have a good snoop up and down the pit lane, um, we might see a little bit more of that, uh, that sort of small detail stuff. But that small detail stuff is so important to the overall package. Yeah, and certainly there have been occasions where renders of cars have had suspension geometry changes when the real car appears. The Haas, in fact, is due to run for the first time on on January the 11th at Silverstone. And in fact, they're doing their second filming day, I think, on the 19th in Bahrain, so a couple of days before the Bahrain test. So they'll have a, a reasonable amount of shakedown running prior to the actual uh, pre-season test. Anything else that caught your eye on the car? Gary, obviously there were some areas that you couldn't see, like you say, the floor edges. We can't see much detail of the the diffusers, just a, a black hole basically in the in the images. No, I think overall, I mean, you, you look at the engine cover, the the, the headrest intake. There's they're opened up there a bit more to get more cooling up to that area. You know, not many years ago that would have been a no no. 
as such because you know you want to keep everything as low as possible but nowadays you know they package so much in on top of the engine cover there for cooling as well as because the side pods have become the priority and the, and the radiator intake for the side pods have become the priority so you have to find the maximum compromise you know when i was saying there about the heating or the the, or the cooling um opposite the heating the cooling for the car and you know 200 kilometers an hour or 220 something like that's an average speed obviously from there then you have you 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 have an ambient that you work to probably your average ambient i suppose would be high 20s maybe 30 degrees if you take the average track so when you're doing the cooling you need to sort of be honest with yourself and you need to make sure that the car can cope with mr average cooling as required um and then you can open up or close down a fraction from there you know if the temperature goes up to 34 or 35 you can open up a little bit if it goes down to 20s you can close it down a little bit when you do close down the cooling, you know, you will get a little bit more downforce. When you open up, you get a bit less downforce. So you really don't want to be one end of that scale. Um, you want to be right in the middle of it if you can and be honest with yourself. And, uh, you know, that's one of the sort of things of the amount of louvers you see on the engine covers and stuff. We won't know that until we really see them running in, in some temperatures to who's got it right. Because I, what I don't understand is some of these teams, and we heard a lot from Mercedes last year about having to back off to get the car to cool. Um, because the one thing you know in a race is that if you're not in pole position and you're not out the front, you're going to be in traffic. There's a very good chance you're going to be in traffic. And if you're in traffic, the only way you can get past is to keep hustling the guy in front of you. And if the car's going to overheat when that's happening, you're just going to have to turn down the performance of it. So one of the most important things with these cars is to be honest with yourself as far as cooling is concerned. And as I say, Haas has moved a bit of their cooling from the inlet of the side pod to the to the rollover bar area, which is obviously a benefit. I, as I say, I think that, you know, my assumption of the car right now would be that it's it's a better looking package than the end of last season with. And they've opened some doors which they should get a return from once they go through them in the wind tunnel and optimise the little stuff that has to go with it. And that's that's really what they've got to focus on doing. Um, and I think, you know, they've probably got a good plan for that this year. Whereas last year they didn't seem to get any return from all their wind tunnel time. So... Who knows, you know, management structure, everything is going to be different for them. Um, they're a small team. Um, Gene Haas doesn't want to put any more money into it, which I don't blame him. He wants to see a return for his investment. And once he sees that return for his investment and they have they take a, a little step up the ladder, perhaps he will put his hand a little bit deeper in his pocket. But first of all, he wants to see it work to a level that um, he, he, you know, has a smile on his face again. Yeah, and that's why this car's important. It's not necessarily where it starts, but it needs to be the right direction, the right concept, and develop through the season. So that's the absolute key for this. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports, and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. 
Easier said done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's look at Haas in general now, Mark, because the messaging has been all about managing expectations, hasn't it? I mean, I know expectations weren't particularly high for Haas after last year's last place. Do you see any rays of hope with not just the car they've got, but also what we're starting to hear about the tweaks and changes that Ayo Komatsu has made since taking over from Steiner? Well, um, yeah, Ayo Komatsu's um, being you know, quite open in, in that he doesn't um, expect them to be setting the world alight in Bahrain. And the reason he's given is that uh, doing that interim car last year diverted a lot of resource away from this car, but he felt it was very necessary to do it because it'd give them the foundation to give them the, the, the data to to get a better understanding of this concept. And, and that, he feels, will um, allow them to really make much more effective upgrades uh, on the car than they were able to do last year when... It, whatever they tried did just didn't didn't add performance so he's saying yeah it's 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 you know that that was a big um level of commitment from us to do that update in austin last year and that's that was all resource and time that wasn't going into this car so we're we're going to be a few weeks behind um you know so you know i don't think there's um any any disgrace in that we we heard from McLaren last year that they don't expect us to be doing anything uh, spectacular early season, um, but we think we'll be really good later on. And, and it, that's exactly how it, it turned out. Um, I, I don't think anyone's seriously expecting Haas to uh, make such a spectacular um, upgrade as, as McLaren made partway through the year. But yeah, there's every reason to to expect that it, it, it will gradually be more competitive um, through the season. And Gary, though, it's a little bit more information about the way they've got the team set up now. They've confirmed Andrea Desordo is technical director. He was the chief designer. We've talked about that before, but it's now 100% set in stone. They've appointed a performance director, which was a, a role they didn't have before. That's Damien Brayshaw. They've also talked about making sure the driver feedback is feeding more effectively into the system. They've talked about having the closed loop into the aero, wind tunnel and CFD departments tying everything together, making sure they don't hit dead ends in terms of development. Is that sort of thing genuinely encouraging? Do you hear that and think, well, that's the right sort of thing you should be doing? Or is it just developmental team noise that just says, yeah, we're doing something but doesn't put any meat on the bone? No, I think it's, it's it's very good what they're doing. I I do back it hundred percent because, you know, communication between the departments, especially as you get bigger, it's just more and more difficult every day. So you have to make sure that you're all pulling in the right in the in the same direction. Is it the right direction or is it the wrong direction? Well, you know, that that sorts itself out with time, but you got to pull in the same direction because if you're all going off in splinter groups, it's just a waste of time. So. You know, the thing about the data that the cars gather, they got you know huge amount, bucket loads of data, and all the engineers can sit down and analyze it. But I, I would 
I would struggle to find two engineers that would analyse it and come up with the same assumption, to be honest. The one thing about the driver driving the car is he, he is the driver driving the car. That's, that's what he does. He, you need to listen to him, and then you need to try and match that data to what he's saying to, to try and find a reason for it happening, an engineering reason, I suppose. But there's no point in looking at this data and making assumptions from it that, you know, if we do this, it'll fix that, point, that peak of data there and blah, blah, blah. You just... You have to focus on the driver, you have to focus on his driving comments, and you have to look for reasons for it within the data. And, you know, you, sh you can see that, you know, he'll complain about understeer through a certain corner. Um, you have to look and see what created that understeer. You look at the data and see where that understeer came from. You know, you'll you're able to see it on the, on the data, the steering lock and the increasing steering lock and the, the, the lateral forces diminishing because, you know, he hasn't got the grip to generate lateral force. So you know the car's understeering, uh, but you need to look at why that happened because it, 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 when it is happening, it's too late. You have to find the problem before it's happening, and that's what the data is all about. So communication within the group of people that's there needs to be, you know, 100%, 100% open. But then there also needs to be the, the, to make sure that everybody pulls off in the same direction. When you make a decision that you're looking at it in this direction, and this is the thing you want to try and analyse and fix, then that's the thing you want to try and analyse and fix. Just not go out the door and, and go off at a completely different t tangent. Because it's, it's not just about finding downforce these days, it's car characteristics. You know, these cars are quick. You know, the turn-in speed in these, these vehicles is, is mind-blowing. So you, the more confidence the driver has, the more confidence he has, the, more, the faster he'll turn into the corner. You know, his talent then sorts out the next bit. Nearly all the mistakes that we see or errors that we see in, in drivers or the car creating an error is in that first third of the corner, getting up to the corner and turning the steering wheel and getting into it. How many times have you seen the car swap ends or the understeer starts and he runs wide? But it's all happened in that, you know, even before a third of the corners happened. Because once you get that first third of the corner, the driver uses his talent to, to, to exit the corner as fast as possible. And the car becomes less of a, less of a problem. It's that first part of the corner that they really got to focus on. And that's about aerodynamic stability, braking stability, car movement, the driver feeling, you know, the loading building up on the, on the outside rear tyre. So much of that is all just about feel. And that's, that's the driver's the only guy can comment on that. And also, Mark, talking about the, the, <laughs> the behaviour of the car when they're steering lock on, obviously, the problems they had with tyre management last year, they have said they haven't got absolutely 100% being able to solve it and completely understand it, but it's pretty clear it was down to the way some of the downforce was disappearing, not in necessarily in entirely predictable ways when there was lock-on. So they know where that problem is. So that's a key thing for this car that we can't judge at this stage. Have they understood how to tackle some of the root cause of that? Because it's really easy to say, well, we have problems when there's steering lock-on, but quite another to make things work aerodynamically. Those exposed rotating wheels, they're, they're complicated beasts aerodynamically. Yeah, I mean, a big part of these cars particularly uh, is controlling the the wheel wake um, and what the airflow is doing further down the car. Um, and as you as you steer, it's got some pretty fundamental implications on that. And if they didn't have a full understanding of that and the car was um, suddenly seeing a step change reduction in downforce as, as the lock went on, then, yeah, that's got implications upon uh, how hard the tyre is being used. And um, it might even help your overall lap. And we saw that it used to qualify quite well on occasion. 
but it will hurt you over a, a sequence of laps uh, as the tyres degrade faster than the other cars. And that did seem to be where they were at with that car. And, um, yeah, I don't think they ever finally nailed what it was that the um, the, the wheel work was doing, but it was it definitely seemed connected to... Uh, it definitely seemed to have an aero uh, cause rather than a mechanical cause. Yeah, the big the big thing really is is the balance. You know, it's one of these sort of situations you, you never hear drivers complaining about understeer or oversteer going down the straight. And the one thing we need to not forget is that the Haas was actually quite a quick car in qualifying. It was quite good. Whether that be because the tyres worked quicker or whatever is is irrelevant. It was potentially a reasonably quick car. They could qualify what, at least one of the cars in the top 10, you know, fairly often. Um, and as you say, Mark, the, the wheel wake, managing that wheel wake and how that uh, affects the ceiling down the underfloor, I would have said that probably the wheel wake was affecting the fact of degrading the ceiling down the underfloor um, and as the tyre grip went away a little bit you know the rear tyres went away faster and you know suddenly you had the car sliding a bit more and as we know with these tyres they don't like sliding they overheat and that sort of compounds the problem so it's, it's just a spiral to nowhere but what you need to do is aerodynamically have the car so you can turn the steering wheel and put steering angle on the car and it keep a stable centre of pressure or even you know if you want to move it one way or another fine as long as you know about it but I've always found it difficult with a car if the centre of pressure um, if, if it shifts rearwards with steering lock or you lose front downforce with steering lock it's always a bit it's always a bit confusing for the driver because the first thing he does if he's got understeer is put more steering lock on and if you lose more front downforce then you put more steering lock on and you lose more front downforce so it's a spiral to nowhere You've got to give the driver the tools to, to use to, um, to help his problems. And if it's the wrong way around, it will make his problems bigger. So understanding is very, very important. And I think that's one of the areas where, as I say, with the way I look at the car at the moment, I think Haas have done a reasonable job to give themselves more opportunity to, to move stuff around a little bit. Yeah, that'll be the big test for them because, of course, it's not just the wheel lock on, it's the... the the car when it's at angles if you like to the, <laughs> to the direction of travel etc so it's it's horrendously complicated but just to conclude mark obviously the the prognosis for Haas isn't brilliant but what do you think's achievable this season should we just write them off as inevitable last place team or do you think there's some hope here no i don't think it's inevitable it'll be last i don't think it'd be a disgrace if they were last as long as it was a, a competitive last as gary was saying earlier on as long as they have a fight with those teams around them um, that's not really in their control. All they can do is work with what they've got. Uh, they, they can't control how how the Sauber goes or how the Williams goes or whatever the uh, the, the racing is it racing bull is going to be called. They, they were their rivals from last year. They, they've got no control over that, but they can just they can continue to tread the path that they're on um, with the, the new structure. Just follow that as, as best they can and and, and try and uh, you know have any, everyone pointing in the same direction and, and see where that takes them. Um, but I don't think it's inevitable that they'll be last, but I don't think it would be a disgrace if they were. As you say, Gary, one team will finish first, another team will finish last. Those are, are two certainties. But how do you see Hass's potential this year? I see it as better than last year, to be honest. I think that you know their management changes, although they'll, it'll be, take a little bit of time to see them all filter into it. I think they're, they might be going into a little bit more of a... Um, a bit more racerish, I suppose you might call it, reacting to the situation in front of them. Um, I think Gunnar Steiner, you know, was 
good guy, good, you know, funny guy, lovely to chat to and stuff. Um, you might have to use the beeper now and again, but that's that's life. But I'm not I'm not so sure that he just had that driven racer attitude. You know, I think that it'll be I think it'll be a different a different team this year, to be honest. And I, I've I've got a little bit of a little bit of hope for them. Um, I don't think we're going to see massive changes for you know this year, but I think we'll get the groundwork done this year and into the beginning of this year at least. So I, I I would expect them to move forward a little bit. Now again, as I said earlier, and as Mark said, you know you can be a competitive last, still going to have to have somebody finish last. So just be a competitive last. That's step one. Step two is to be a little bit better than that. But that depends so much on what how the others how the others operate. So you can only do what you can do. Yeah, I think the positive thing is while. I fear for the long term of this team because I don't think they're investing enough and that will mean in the long term they'll fall behind in terms of performance potential. I don't feel that teams like Williams and and State Sauber and um, and so so on are moving are yet out of reach as it were. So if they do a maximizing job if you like of what they've got, they can be in the mix in in that battle and be be picking off points finishes on a sort of semi-regular basis so yeah very very interesting to see how this team goes I don't think it's all uh, doom and gloom and they'll be hoping that even if it starts a bit slowly the engineering changes the technical changes will yield good performance gains which was the problem last year they basically had four months in the wind tunnel where they found almost no downforce gains negligible gains it wasn't worth pressing the button to make things so they need to change that massively well thanks very much gary and mark for your insight head to the race.com don't forget the hyphen plenty to read there including gary's in-depth analysis of the car with some great images there as well listen to our other podcasts including the race f1 tech show with gary of course bring back v10s that tells classic f1 stories our indycar formula e and moto gp podcast too and check out youtube for long and short form videos this is just the first part of the epic that is launch season, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.